As I was worshiping, I was kind of envisioning what it will be like when we finally get to heaven. Anybody ever do that? Never thought about, you know, if we can worship God here in song and with music and temple and harp and our voices and with harmonies. And I was, I was listening to you all, and there were many of you that were harmonizing, and it was just kind of this heavenly mixture of kind of where my heart was and my mind was and kind of was just looking into heaven, thinking about how good God is to us, that he allows us that privilege, as Brandon was praying, it's so true. You know, he allows us to come into his presence by the blood of his son. We, we get to be in the throne room of God. And so tonight, I, I pray that we continue in that atmosphere of worship as we turn our attention to the word. Now here tonight, as, as we have begun to do on our communion Sundays, uh, we do have the elements of communion. We're going to make those available during our closing time of worship. So at the end of the study, um, if you were unable or if you want to partake of communion for a second time today, that's perfectly okay. There's no set amount in Scripture for going to the Lord's table. It's a time for us as the body of Christ to do what the Apostle Paul said Jesus said to do, which is to remember the Lord. And to thank him. My only request of you is when we turn our attention uh, to the communion table to remind you if you happen to be visiting, maybe you're new to this thing called church and uh, you were going down Knox or Vermont and you, you saw this crazy looking industrial building and it actually says Calvary Chapel on it and you came in. Uh, I want you to know what those elements are. That is a representation of the broken body and the blood of Christ. That is for the body of Christ alone. And so uh, as you partake, please partake knowing uh, that the Lord holds us responsible for understanding those elements represent what he did on Calvary's cross. And so uh, a little more a bit later. If you'd turn to Acts chapter 12 tonight as we continue. And a study that I've entitled, Never Underestimate God. Anybody in here guilty of underestimating God? Uh, I just got through several days of it in Nicaragua. I'm like, you know, it's, it's really interesting what happens when, when the Lord speaks into your life. Um, for those of you that have been in the mission field, you know that there, there's kind of this wondrous thing that happens and, and God speaks to you and, and all of a sudden you find yourself signed up for some mission trip and you're going to go someplace. There's this great excitement. I'm going to go here or go there and there, I'm going to be engaged in this type of ministry and that type of ministry. And then there's the, the leaving and you're like, oh, oh, what have I done? And then you get there and it's really like, I'm going to die here. And, you know, things happen and you're like, oh, this is just, you know, it's going to be terrible. And then and then in steps the Lord into that situation. And really what's happened is you've underestimated God. You've overestimated your own abilities and you've underestimated his. And the way that often happens with us is thusly. Very often, we have a tendency to think, as believers, the older we get in Christ and the more things we do for the Lord, 
the more likely it is that he's going to surround us with a bubble that will protect us from everything and will never, ever experience a trial, tribulation, or a difficulty ever again in our lives. You, you, you would think, and most people do think, that as you would look at the apostles, you would think God would just completely surround them with angels so that they could just go about their business and do whatever it is that God called them to do, and no one would ever touch them. And yet we find exactly the opposite is true. And so we underestimate God. The experience uh, of what he does in us. And sometimes it leads us to that oft thought, common thing that many of us go through. It's almost like, God, did you lose sight of where I'm at? You know, I'm over here and we're kind of like waving our hands. One of the things that happens for a number of years, I was on the San Diego Mountain Rescue Team, and one of the things that happens when people are lost is, is they kind of get in that mode to where they just scream and yell at the sky. I mean, they, they literally burn up all of their energy waving their hands at nothing. It's like, I'm over here. We were searching for a guy one time in the Cuyamaca Mountains who had gotten lost in a, in a campground, Green Valley campground there in Cuyamaca State Park. I don't think the guy ever got more than a mile or so away from where he was camped at. But, but he, he wandered down this canyon, and, and when we found him, he was literally yelling at houses that were like 10 miles away in Alpine. He's on the top of this ridge, Hey, I'm over here! He was almost out of his mind. He lost sight of where he actually was. And in some ways, we as believers sometimes lose sight of who we actually are in Christ. It's like, God, I'm over here. Did you forget where I was at? And our passage tonight, this whole chapter, will take all of chapter 12. You might put in the category of David the psalmist there in Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16, which Peter quotes, who is the focus. Again, this is kind of where Peter is going to fade out of the, the picture in the book of Acts here in this chapter. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Sometimes we think the eyes of the Lord have somehow fallen off of us, but he's always got his eyes on us. And so as we turn our attention, the first few verses here, just a wonderful time tonight. And now about at the time that Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and then notice this, here's one of those guys. You would think James, this is not James the half-brother of Jesus, this is James the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. And then he killed James the brother of John with a sword. And usually that meant that they were beheaded. You, you would think that God would put his hand over the apostles and 
You know, at least he would protect them from the very worst of things. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. You know, sometimes the history of the church is, as the church begins to be persecuted and things happen within the church, people kind of start to get pretty excited about the fact that maybe our demise has come. Can I tell you that people have been saying that the church is going to fade from existence for 2,000 years, and yet here we are? We're still here. And I believe we're not only going to still be here, but we're actually going to thrive underneath the next wave of persecution, much like the church did in the first century. And so, now it was during the days of the unleavened bread, so that when he had arrested him, he put him into prison and delivered him to four squads, or four quadrillions of soldiers. So, four groups of four. So, during the four quadrants of the day, hence the preface, the the word quad there in the the original language, there were four periods of, of the time of the day, and Peter would be guarded every waking moment by four guards. So somehow he thought Peter was a threat, so much so that he assigned uh, a, a very strong force to take care of him. And he put him into prison, and he kept him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. He, he knew better than to put to death someone who was highly respected. Uh, so he was going to wait till after Passover. And in this, these few verses, you know, you, you kind of look at this and we have to keep in mind that very often with persecution comes progress. When, when God is at work, there, there is something that the Lord is doing, even though the, we don't understand it. And so we have here one of the Herods. And very often people think that the name Herod is actually a name. It's actually a title. It was a group of men. Uh, we find four of them actually in Scripture. Uh, and those four, all of them were evil. Not one of them was good. And they were rulers appointed by the Roman uh, Caesars to rule over Palestine. And, and so Herod Agrippa I is the one that's in view here. The son of Aristobulus, the grandson of Herod the Great. And, and so there was a tremendous amount of nepotism within the leadership of both the Roman uh, the, the Roman government and, and the Caesars, and then also within their puppet rulers, like this Igemean king who's been appointed by Caesar. And so Agrippa, as he's mentioned in the Bible, he, he's going to die in this particular chapter. He's also going to be mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus. Um, but he was a, he was a rotten dude. And, and the reason that we know that is who he was friends with. We find through the history of the Roman Empire uh, that he was uh, very good friends with Caligula, one of the most evil of all of the Caesars, and also Claudius who followed him. Uh, neither one of them would you ever want to have your family anywhere near. Uh, these men were about as perverse as could possibly be. And so anyone who was friend with The Caesars, especially those two particular Caesars, would have been someone who uh, you definitely did not want to be around as a Christian. And so Agrippa is going to first execute uh, James, the brother of John. Herod the Great murdered all. Remember, he was responsible for the death of all the firstborn in Bethlehem. He's he's like, you know, we got to wipe out this guy. I don't want anybody vying for my power. 
Uh, Herod Antipas was involved at the trial of Jesus, and he was also responsible for John the Baptist's execution. Herod Agrippa here murders the Apostle James, and Agrippa II uh, will be actually one of the judges who judges uh, the Apostle Paul himself. And so this is a prime example of some reasoning behind God allowing evil to exist in the world. And people struggle with that. It's one of the common questions we get as a church. Anybody ever been asked, well, if God's so good, why does he allow evil to exist? It's actually one of the most common questions that I get as a pastor. And it's asked by believers and unbelievers alike. And this is a good example of an extremely evil man who somehow lives and an apostle who ends up murdered. That makes no sense at all to us in our small little minds, does it? We would kind of flip that, wouldn't we? I'm like, you know, Herod's wandering around, all of a sudden he trips and falls off the southern wall off the Temple Mount or something and dies. That's what would happen if I were God. But God in his sovereign plans often allows seemingly evil people to exist and even prosper for a time and for very good, godly, wonderful people to die. And I think that the basic reasoning behind that, though it's an extremely lengthy argument that one could make about this, ultimately it shows the absolute attention of God to the most minute of details in all of humankind because he is no respecter of persons. It rains on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. And you can be on either side. And again, because we're saved by grace and through faith, our works in any way, shape, or form are not indicative of either God's favor or his lack of favor. Because otherwise, people would just say, hey, things are going good, so I must be okay with God. And so no one can say that. Just because things are going good in your life does not mean one moment that you have God's approval. You can have circumstantially good things going on in your life and be completely out of God's will. And the reason I know that's true is I know pastors who have been completely out of God's will, their church growing while they're in absolute horrific sin. So God wasn't blessing their sin, and he wasn't blessing them. He was just blessing, period, because he's a blessing God. And at the same time, I just got through meeting with a whole bunch of pastors and leaders and churches that you would look at, and by our standards, every last one of them were abject failures in ministry. And one could say, by the size of their church, the amount of money in their pocketbook, that God doesn't love them. And yet I can tell you, God absolutely loves them, and they're going to be the ones wearing the most crowns when we get to heaven before they give them to Jesus. By the works of the flesh is no one saved. By the works of the flesh is no one justified. By the works of the flesh, no one can judge anything. God is completely fair, and so he allows good things to happen to bad people and bad things to happen to good people. So there's a short non-book version because entire books have been written on this subject, and quite frankly, I've never read one that did much better at explaining 
that particular situation that I just gave you in a very short period of time. There are some things that we can draw from this. You, you see, during that day and time, much like there are in this day and time, there were family dynasties. And it was believed in Roman culture that if you were born into a good family, that those good family genes, in essence, and the fortune of that good family was a sign of the favor of the gods upon you. And this is a perfect example, and we'll finish it up at the end of the chapter of why that's not true. But you can have great family ties and not have the hand of the Lord on you. And you can have terrible family ties and have the hand of the Lord on you. And so we see that God is stronger than even the deepest family ties. A second thing that we can see in this is the example, because in this group of Herods, from Herod the Great to Herod Antipas to Herod Agrippa to Herod Agrippa II, all of the Herods, you affect your children. You pass along a heritage to your children. The question is, what example are you setting for your children? Because in the life of the Herods, they had every opportunity to set a great example. They wanted for nothing. They, they could have been kind and gentle and generous, and yet they set an evil example. And one after another, each successive generation, in some cases, became more evil than the ones previous. And so a picture for us from this passage is he had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. This is a man who inherited an evil heritage from his parents, and he himself was evil, and he would pass it on to his heir. And so James now, the brother of John, is dead. And it's interesting, of these two brothers, they were the first and the last of the apostles to die. They're brothers. And you would think, you know, hey, they're raised in the same home, probably roughly, you know, a couple of good guys. You know, remember they argued about who was going to be greatest, and mom gets in the middle of it, and, you know, let one sit on the right, one sit on the left. You know, they were pretty equal as far as being men of reasonable character, and yet one goes first and one goes last. Another example of God uh, not being a respecter of persons and doing exactly uh, what you would see. And a further thing that you see in this, and kind of on the same, uh, the same level, when you think about the way God functions in our world, as you see this passage of Scripture kind of unfold, you would think that here James and Peter, who are hanging out together, James is going to die and Peter's going to be miraculously released. And so our thinking kind of is, wow, you know, well, maybe James was on his way out. Or maybe James had a, this is one, this is a biggie. James must have had secret sin. He had some deep problems. We start to even judge people by what happens to them as to whether God actually loved them maybe more than he loved someone else. And there's no indication whatsoever that God loved Peter, and that's why Peter got to go free. Matter of fact, Peter, of all the apostles, I personally believe, save maybe the apostle Paul, I don't know of any of the apostles that received more grace from God than Peter. 
And I think as far as Scripture actually tells us, Peter actually gets more grace than the Apostle Paul does because Paul was largely ignorant when he came to faith in Christ. And we really don't see Peter doing a whole lot of backsliding. Or, or we don't see Paul doing a whole lot of backsliding. But we see Peter kind of, it's like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm never going to deny you. He denies. I'm going to do good, but he doesn't do good. He was, always had his foot in his mouth. All kinds of questions that come to us when we see God, but at the end of it, all of us, each one of us, should absolutely just recognize that God is sovereign and God alone knows why he does what he does and he has reasonings behind everything. As I've gotten older, I have just simply learned to trust in the sovereign hand of God. You know, people will always, they, they, very often I will get asked, you know, why did God do this or why did God do that? You know, how come he allowed these things? And, and I really have gotten a place, I, I almost immediately say, I don't know. I really am not sure. Because I could give you a few reasons, but they may not have anything to do. You know, it, our human reasoning and logic would say it might be these things. Why is one child physically disabled and another in the same family athletically gifted? We have some friends within our family, some people that we know in ministry that that have perfectly normal children and children that are born with Down syndrome. You know, is there something wrong with one versus the other? Were the parents being punished? Jesus was asked that question. The child that was born with the, with the birth defect, you know, who sinned, mom or dad? And Jesus answered, he said, neither. Neither. But all this was done to glorify the Lord. And that's at the end, that's what we look for. We look for God to glorify himself in all circumstances, good or bad. And when you run through what happened to all the apostles, I mean, the list of the things that happens to them, it's kind of like, man, nobody would have signed up for that job. Had, you know, had somebody said, well, you know, you're, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and you're going to be translated to glory, everybody would be going, oh, that sounds great. You know, John is going to be exiled to Patmos. Andrew uh, crucified upside down on, the, on a cross shaped as an X. Uh, Philip died as a martyr at Hierapolis. Bartholomew uh, likely was flayed open alive and or crucified upside down. I mean, the history books are filled with what happened to the apostles, and not a bit of it's good. It's like the, the one who escapes really is John. He just gets exiled, lives in a cave. Family, you got to just simply trust him. And you may not have an answer this side of glory for everything that happens in your life. Now, we may lose people that we love, and God may choose to keep people here on this earth that you're kind of thinking could be a blessed subtraction. You know what I'm saying? Because we almost all have those kind of people in our lives. It's just like, well, you know, could you just, maybe there be like a single car rollover accident with that person involved in it. And if we're honest, we, we have probably, most of us, thought things similar to that. Maybe you're too nice, but I can tell you I've had those times. 
I've had wives come into my office and talk about the abuse that they're going through with their husband, and they'll tell me they've been to counselor after counselor and been working through these things for 20 years, and I I will tell you, there are thoughts that go through my mind that should not be in there, and they're usually, well, you know, God, you could just kill them. I thought those things. Be better for her, better for the family, better for the kids. I can also tell you that I've had to repent on my face before God when God gets a hold of that guy that I gave up on. And he actually does turn around. And here, I'm giving up way before God does. And I can tell you exactly the opposite is also true. I've had people that I'm, oh man, the Lord's just totally at work in this person's life. You know, this is going to be, this guy's, you know, it's going to be a lifer. And a year later, they're seemingly not even walking with the Lord, and they're engaged in stuff that, you know, we would assign to the, the roles of the most vile among us. Don't underestimate God in using things that you don't understand. Since all these things were largely political, you just have to leave it in the hands of the Lord. F. B. Meyer wisely said, the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Sometimes we just stop praying. It's like we, we figure God's not listening, God's not hearing, but the earnest prayer of the church, notice this, verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And I believe that's actually what freed him. We don't know what our prayers are doing. So we just have to keep praying. I've been praying for my mom for the better part of three decades. Asking God, God, she actually grew up in the church, but there's not a single evidence that she knows you. Please. Please, God, save her. Don't let her take her last breath. But to this point in time, that's not happened. But God just simply told me, you keep praying. Your job is not to save her. Your job is to pray for her to be saved. I have no power to save anyone. It's kind of cute, and in some ways it... I feel honored that people would say that. But I actually have people come and they'll bring somebody and they go, you need to save this person. And I'll kind of look at them, well, I'd really love to do that, but I can't. And they kind of look, you know, like, well, what do you mean? I said, why, because I can't save anybody. And I'll have to, would you like to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And if they say no, there's not a thing I can do. I have no power to save them. They have to want to be saved. Your job is to just pray. And that's what the church did for Peter. Notice verse 6. Never forget God hears those prayers. And when Herod was about to bring him out, so he was going to wait until after Passover to deal with Peter, undoubtedly to kill him as well. He's on his last leg. The dudes did. That's why he was assigned so many soldiers. 
because he didn't want him getting away until he had a chance to use him politically as a spectacle and end his life. Herod was about to bring him out, and that night Peter was sleeping. And I love this, because this is one of those stories. This is a God thing. Bound with two chains between two soldiers. So Peter doesn't have one chain on. It's not like ankle to ankle or ankle to wrist or wrist to wrist or not a wrist to a wall. He's chained to two live soldiers. So no matter who moves, who's snoring, what's going on, Peter's going nowhere. Chains between two soldiers. And guards before the door were keeping him in prison. So he's chained to two guys, and he's got two guards in front of the door. There's only one door into the room, so in case one of the guards falls asleep, derelicts his duty, there's another guard to back him up. There are four guards with Peter around the clock. He ain't going nowhere. The dude's in the hole. Solitary. But God's open. He's listening. He's hearing. And and but prayer, that verse 5. But prayer, constant prayer. That's the turning point in the story. The turning point in this story is but prayer. Can you say that in your life, the turning point in the story you have witnessed is but prayer? But I was praying, and I earnestly prayed, and God heard those prayers. Here's the good news. God always hears the prayers. The only question is when he chooses to act and how he chooses to act. It has nothing to do with whether he hears them. He hears the prayers of the righteous. And James tells us the effective and the fervent prayers of a righteous man, a righteous woman, we who are righteous in Christ because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we have a right standing before God. God hears those prayers, period. Always. His ears are attuned to his children. And so there's some things we see in this drama Verses 5 and 6, we see that first Peter is sleeping. Now, if you were about to die and you were chained to two Roman guards and you were on the last evening, because he's about to bring him out, on the last evening of your life, what's the only way you would be sleeping if you were trusting God? That's not sleepy nap time. That's I'm going to stay awake and worry and fret time. If you don't know the Lord, one of the, one of the saddest things that we deal with as, as pastors is when we have to minister to someone who's on their deathbed and they do not know the Lord. It is, frankly, for me, it's nearly unbearable. It's one of those things that all I can do is pray but the franticness of the mind and the places that they go in their heads and the struggles that occur. I have watched people, both believers and un, take their last breath. Far too many, more than I want to count. And I've watched people who know the Lord just so totally at peace with God just be ushered into the throne room by angels that I believe, I honestly believe, I think God in in some cases literally sends angels to just escort that person right into glory. 
and it is the most peaceful, wonderful thing. It, it's, it's like heaven. It's like something happens. It's like it's time to go. Look, we're here for you. Your bags are packed. Your gig's over. You're going home. And there's peace and joy. And I've had the opposite of sitting there and watch people curse God literally with their dying breath. Screaming explicatives at every person in the room. Cursing the very existence that there might even be a God. The difference between those two people is one is resting and trusting in God and one doesn't believe that God even exists. And in this case, Peter's resting and trusting. He's finally got it all together. It's like, okay, I learned my lesson. And he's just resting in the Lord. You know, and sometimes deliverance doesn't come right away. He knew the people were praying for him. They kept it up night and day. And you can almost imagine Peter just reflecting on the promises of God. I don't know what he was thinking about. We're not actually told. But we know because of who he was, he had an understanding of, of the Psalms, certainly. And so there he's, he's probably going through those things in his mind. And, and he's just listening to the Lord. And, and it's this beautiful thing to where all of a sudden maybe, you know, the Psalm, Psalm 4 comes to him. I will lay him down in peace and sleep for you alone make me dwell in safety, Lord. I don't know what he was thinking. But I know he was at peace because he was asleep, even though he was chained to a couple of guards. Peter simply laid hold of the promise that God had him, and it gave him peace. Second thing we see is Peter obeying the Lord. Verse 7, And now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. He's so asleep, the angel has to whack the dude. He's like out. He's like sawing logs. He's, 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 he, he's got like his mouth guard in, and he's, so he doesn't snore. I don't know what's going on. He's out. Say, Peter, arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel of the Lord said to him, Gird yourself and tie your saddles. Now, I love this, because two things happen. And it's so important for us to see it as the body of Christ. God does both the miraculous and uses the absolutely ordinary. He says, look, the chains are coming off supernaturally, but oh, by the way, Peter, put your pants on and tie your shoes. God works like that. Not everything in a miracle is miraculous. Sometimes the mere fact that you are where you are is the actual miracle. And then God uses the ordinary circumstances beyond that. But he says, look, you, you need to put your pants on. Gird yourself up. In other words, he's saying, look, take your tunic, tie it up, put on your sandals, lace those puppies on. You need some Nikes on you right now because you're going to need to run. I'm setting you free, but I don't want you to think you can just walk out and go thumb your nose at the guards. You're going to need to hit the road running. 
And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. It, it happened so fast. He's like outside before he knows it, and he's like, Man, am I dreaming? That's a guy who was totally asleep. Have you ever had those things where you wake up and you don't know whether what you just thought in that dream actually happened or not? And if it's something not good, you're like, wow, I'm glad I'm awake. Because I was kind of thinking, I I have these weird, I I have these reoccurring nightmares, and, and they usually involve my entire family being killed. I mean, the enemy sometimes torments me, even as a pastor. And I mean, it is so real that I literally watch my, both my boys and my wife are killed right in front of me. And there are times when I, I, I am sweating, uh, I'm like, and, and usually because I'm thrashing around trying to fight whoever it is that's trying to hurt them, Connie will wake me up, and I'm like, oh, praise God, it's not real. But in this case, Peter's been sleepwalking he's outside already it was real and when they were past the first and the second guard post they came to the iron gate that leads to the city which opened unto them of its own accord another miracle but notice God's using miracles and ordinary circumstances Peter you need to walk all move the stuff that needs to be moved this is unbelievably perfect for us You need to take the steps of faith that you know to take. You need to do what God's asked you to do in the real world, in real time, with real effort. And you leave the miracles to God. Whatever needs to be a miracle, that's up to God to do. But you need to do what God asked you to do. And this is another picture of how he uses our obedience He's listening, God's speaking through this angel. He says, Look, let's go. And we get there, because I'm sure Peter in his mind is going, look, it's at night. The city gates are locked at night just to keep the invaders out. How are we getting out? There's guards at the gate too. He opened them. They opened with their own accord. And they went out and down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he's, he's like in this dream state. He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel. And has delivered me from the hand of Herod, from all the expectation of the Jewish people. He says, look, I I, I know. What a lesson in humility and obedience this is. Peter keeps on knocking, verse 12. And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. And there were many gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And she recognized Peter's voice. And because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. This is the craziest thing. Peter's out there. It's like, hey, could you let me in? And, and the girl's like, I hear Peter's voice. This is awesome. I must be having a dream too but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, are you beside yourself? Because they're all going, look, we've been praying for Peter. He ain't outside. He's in prison. He's going to die probably tomorrow. You probably should lay off the wine. Are you beside yourself? Yet she kept insisting that it was so. 
And they said, check this out. They have enough faith to believe there's an angel outside, but not enough faith to believe that God released Peter. Isn't that nuts? Aren't we like that sometimes? We, we have enough faith to believe that God can do miracles, but Peter's outside knocking and we're not going to let him in. They said, it's an angel. And now Peter continues knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Now think of this for a second. They're okay if it's an angel outside knocking on the door. But wow, it's Peter. Which is the greater miracle? God's doing miracles around us every single day. And we're over there, wow, I don't know. You know, I don't know if God can do that. Then he does a legitimate miracle. We're like, no, we try and explain it away. God's in the miracle business. He does miracles all the time. The fact that I got to the airport yesterday and, and, and wasn't sitting in some, you know, jail somewhere waiting with Francisco while he got bailed out is just a miracle. <laughs> Complete miracle. Because I was looking at the Speedo and it wasn't even close to the speed limit. And as the officer walks over, Tells him that I'm a missionary and the dude is afraid that I might actually know God. So he lets us go. <laughs> That's God at work. It's miracles. Peter follows this angel. God opens the way. Peter's free. The angels vanish. Peter heads for the house of Mary and they're praying. They're doing it's almost comical what's going on. It's like sometimes we're at we're anybody in here ever pray for miracles? Raise your hand right now if you've ever prayed for a miracle. I think every hand I've prayed for miracles. Isn't it stupid that when God does one, we're not going, hey, that was a miracle. Instead, we start saying, well, you know, the Lord did this, and the Lord did that, and the Lord did this, and we come up with our little path as how it got there in some natural means. Look, God's doing miracles around you every day. The fact that you're even saved, that we can all sit in one room and, and talk about God's Word, that's miraculous. God does miracles every day. We need to recognize that God is the God of miracles. Our job, like Peter's, was to keep knocking, keep seeking, keep asking, and we're going to find him. We, we have to, to face that reality every day. We need to then declare, verse 17 says, but uh, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He said, go and tell these things to James and to the brethren. Now this is the other James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. And he departed and went to another place. You, you see, as, as Peter is freed, James is informed. And as Peter is freed, that miracle becomes something that bolsters the faith of everybody that's there. We need also remember to trust God to deal with our enemies. How does a chained prisoner get, getting out? And verse 18 it says, And then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Yeah, I'm thinking so. He's chained to two guards. You, you would think, you know, maybe he might be able to get one of the chains loose from one of the guards without one of them noticing. 
But to get two sets of chains off of two guards, that's a little over the top. And then to get out of the jail cell, that's a little more over the top. And then to get past the prison guards outside, that's even more over the top. And then to get down the street to a locked gate and get through the locked gate and get out of the city, it's like way over the top. And yet, sometimes we don't trust God to deal with those things that we would consider the very enemies of our soul. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. Now, something you need to know about Roman law. Roman law was extremely just, and it was very equitable. So the penalty for failure of duty of a Roman soldier was that they would have to pay the penalty that was owed by the criminal. So if you have someone that escapes and the penalty was, you know, a flogging, then the soldier would be flogged. But in this case, to give you an idea of how much people hate God, Herod doesn't have to, he could have, he could have let the one guy slide with just killing him, but he kills everybody. That's the, re- over, that's the overreaction that we still see in the world. That's why the, the world is like, you know, just get rid of the Christians, everything will be fine. We, we see that frequently in the news media. Well, just get rid of the Christians. They're the problem. They're the narrow-minded, bigoted people. They're the ones that say Jesus is the only way. Get rid of them. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. And now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, and asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. And as always... You know, when, when people don't know the Lord and they make allegiances, those allegiances are very strong. Uh, I, I had no idea that, uh, about this, and as I've been traveling uh, through Central America, I found out that I guess I'm crazy or something, because when I tell people that, you know, we go back and forth to El Salvador, the people in Central America don't go to El Salvador because it's so dangerous that they're like, you went to El Salvador? Don't you know that people get murdered there every day? Well, I guess I'm an idiot. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm just, well, no, I didn't really know that, but thanks for letting me know. You see, all the political allegiances, alliances, and all the things that go on, people fear all of that. And people fear the gangs, and people fear the spheres of influence of all of these evil drug lords and things that go on. It's just crazy. It's like as I was talking to, to Francisco, and we're, we're there talking about the corruption in, in Nicaragua, it's like everybody is on the take, and everybody has somebody that they know that gets some kind of money from somebody that's illegal. And so they all have fear. But you watch the Christians, and they're just like, eh, it's in God's hands or it's not in God's hands, and I believe it's in God's hands, so I'm just going to keep going. And so on a set day, Herod arrayed in a royal apparel, in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. So he's pontificating from his throne. And the people kept shouting, "The voice of a god, and not of a man." Uh, this is this is God, like in your face, saying, mm, 
not so much. The people, because of the transactions that are being done, that are taking care of their daily needs, are saying that what's coming out of that guy's mouth, that's God. And sometimes we do that. We, we pay so much attention to political things and to the way that our economy works and who can give us the best deal on whatever that we sell our souls, in essence, to people who don't know the Lord. And this is what always happens because the Lord God in heaven is the one who raises up kings and takes down kings and he raises up nations and tears down nations. And when he says a nation's time is done, that nation's time is done, period. And no force on this earth can keep him in power. So all the worrying and fretting, frankly, is just senseless for believers. We need to be praying and not worrying. He says, oh, this is the voice of God, not of a man. Then immediately, I love this, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, during that day and time, there was an intestinal roundworm that once it got into your intestinal system was almost 100% fatal. And those roundworms would grow sometimes as much as 15 to 20 inches long. They would occupy all of the space in your digestive system. And in essence, you would waste away. But in the final stages of this, people would grow back to their normal size. It was because of what was going on, the infection inside of them. And this whole time, while Herod's looking like he's like the king, he's dressed in his purple robe, he looks good on the outside. He's making trade agreements. He's bringing prosperity to the land. Things are going great. And God says, I've had enough. You're dead. And just like that, from the inside, he's gone. We need to trust God to deal with our enemies. Notice the, the contrast, verse 24 and 25. But the word of God grew and multiplied And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had been fulfilled in their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname is Mark. You you see, Herod dies and the church grows. Isn't that crazy? It looked like the church was going to die and Herod's empire was going to grow. It looked like Peter was going to die and Herod's empire was going to grow. It looked like everybody that was good was going to die and the church was going to fall apart. But in fact, God working behind the scenes caused exactly the opposite to be the case. Trust God with things you don't understand. The world lives by force, it lives by flattery. We live by faith and we live by truth. Amen? I want to bring the worship team back out. And I I just want us to to grasp really a kind of a single thing from this. There were praying people involved in the deliverance of Peter. And that deliverance was both miraculous and it was ordinary. And in view was a hostile government that you would think would have had total control over everything But in fact, God had total control over the whole situation. And so this is a picture for us as the church. 
If you're struggling tonight with trusting God, then this passage is for you. You see, there were legitimate reasons to wonder if God had taken his eyes off of Peter and off of John. And there was a legitimate reason to even believe, you know, is God real? But God showed up. And I want to tell you tonight, God's going to always show up. We just don't know when. And we don't know how. And so we have to walk by faith and not by sight. And we've got to trust him. So we're going to go into a time, and we're just going to do a couple of songs. We're going to go into a time of prayer and a time of worship. Some pastors are going to come forward. And maybe you've got an area of your life to where you have a Herod. And you've been waiting for God to deal with that Herod. Come and be prayed for. Pray for a divine intervention for God to deal with your Herod. Maybe you need a miraculous intervention tonight because there's something that you're chained to. Maybe it's not a Roman soldier, but maybe it's debt. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe something broken in your marriage and you're chained to it. And you think it's going to kill you. I'm here to tell you tonight, God wants to break those chains. And so as we begin to worship, you need some chains broken. You need a deliverance from something. You need for God to deal with the Herod in your life. So pastors come forward, come and be prayed for. If you don't know the Lord and you want to be able to walk by faith and not by sight, come and be prayed for. If you want to thank God for what he is doing and you want to go to the table and you want to celebrate what was done on Calvary's cross, then go to the table and thank him for what he did by his broken body and his shed blood because he made it possible for us to be his people. And so as we enter into a time of worship, if you want to get on your knees and pray where you're at, do it. You want to get in the aisles and pray? Do it. You need to do some business with God? Do business with God. We're going to take maybe 10 minutes and set our faces towards heaven. We're going to be like Daniel who set his face on heaven and he refused to eat of the king's meat. And he said, I have one God. And I'm going to worship him. And when others kneeled, he stood. When others shook with fear, he stood in faith.